So tonight we're hearing about Paul. He's got a new companion now, Silas. And probably with a group of people, they're continuing to travel through Gentile towns. We've also got Timothy with him and Luke, who writes Acts, and he's with them. Tonight we're going to hear about more opposition to the message of Jesus and how God works through it. So we're reading from Acts chapter 16, starting from verse 16. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realised that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful to, for us Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptised. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Thanks for reading that for us, Steve. Good evening, everyone. It's great to be here with you. If you haven't met me yet, my name's Ken, one of the pastors here. Um, 
I'm just feeling a little bit jealous of the Turks as they get ready to head off to Chiang Mai. Uh, many of you know, Christy and I uh, lived in Chiang Mai for a number of years. And uh, when we first moved to Thailand, WEC was just in the start of plans to actually build that hostel. Uh, so it's very exciting for us to know people who are going there to continue a ministry that we know firsthand facilitates uh, families being able to stay in places sharing the good news about Jesus, which they otherwise wouldn't be able to. So I heartily encourage you to get behind the Turks. Now, over the last seven weeks, we've been working our way through this through the book of Acts, which records the history of how the news about Jesus' life, death, resurrection and ascension was spread from Jerusalem all around the world. Last week, we read about a huge debate that came almost 2,000 years ago. Some people thought that a Jewish ritual, circumcision, had to be done for God to accept people into his family. But the leaders of the church met in Jerusalem and rejected this idea, insisting that if anyone, Jew or Gentile, trusts that Jesus has died in their place, then they are saved by grace. It's a free gift, not based on anything that we do. Now, reflecting this fact this morning uh, was Melody Totman's dedication, which emphasised that a ritual can't save her either. Rather, an infant dedication is a commitment by her parents, her family and friends to, to introduce her to Jesus, the only one who can save Now, the church that was originally most impacted by this debate was in a mainly Gentile town called Antioch, almost 500 kilometres to the north of Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem sent the Gentile Christians in Antioch a letter explaining their conclusion, how they'd come to this point. Now, a while later, after they'd received that letter, Paul suggested that he and Barnabas go back to visit the Gentile Christians who lived even further afield than Antioch to the west of Antioch, to to see how they were doing and take this encouraging letter to them. Barnabas wanted to take along with them John Mark, which we now find out would have been giving him a second chance after John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia on the first missionary journey. People think that Barnabas probably is swayed by the fact that Mark was his cousin, Colossians 4 verse 10 seems to suggest. Now, whatever the reason or reasons it causes yet another disagreement, meaning that Barnabas heads west with John Mark while Paul, as he uh, takes Silas, and he heads off to the north. They're going to probably cross over because they're going to the same churches, but we don't find out. Now, again, little details like this confirm the integrity, the honesty of Luke, the author. He could have very easily chosen to just overlook this incident or spin the separation as a good thing. How good is it? There's two teams that are going out now instead of just one. Now, instead, he shows it for what it really was, a sad separation caused by a disagreement between two men who both loved Jesus and wanted other people to hear about him. And yet even their fight will lead to good things, which is what we're going to have a look at from this passage that Steve just read for us. Now, we need God's enabling uh, for us to understand and respond rightly. So will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the book of Acts. Thank you for this account of how the news about your life 
death, resurrection and ascension was spread from Jerusalem all over the world, firstly amongst Jews, but then to Jews and Gentiles. Uh, we thank you for the things that we as Gentiles can learn from this. And we pray that again, that you would help us to understand why these things are written down. Um, and even more importantly, that by your spirit, you'd work in us so we would respond to these words as we should. Uh, so that our lives would honour you. We ask it in your name. Amen. Are you a cat or a dog person? Dog? <laughs> There's not many cats out there. Uh, country or beach for holidays? Beach. You, yeah, some of you are right. Uh, do you have an Apple or an Android phone? Apple. <laughs> Sheep. <laughs> Either or questions like these can reveal a lot about someone, and, and they're often used in a fun get-to-know-you type interview. It can help us to connect to someone, to, to get to know where, what they're like, maybe even decide if you want to like them. But yes-no questions can also demand an either-or response that doesn't actually do justice to the complexity of the underlying issues. Nature or nurture? Ask a parent science or religion. As we come to this next chapter in the book of Acts, a question that's been bubbling away for many chapters finally comes fully to the surface. Is salvation God's work or is it ours? Do we need to do things so that God will accept us or is salvation a free gift with no strings attached? Now, I'm going to push this a little bit further and ask, does posing the question in this either-or way actually draw us away from the true answer that is much more nuanced than just an either-or? Nevertheless, the question is posed along these very lines in verse 30. What must I do to be saved? Obviously, it picks one side, emphasising what we do, which could be seen as a challenge to the answer already provided back in chapter 15 that we looked at last week. Last week we saw that some misguided Jewish Christians were demanding that in addition to trusting in Jesus, Gentiles, that is non-Jews, needed to also be circumcised and keep the law, what we call the Old Testament, as Jews had been doing for centuries. But the Christian leaders, who were Jews themselves, made it 100% clear that salvation is by grace, meaning that in practice all of the Old Testament rules have already been fulfilled by Jesus and in Jesus, and so we aren't expected to keep them anymore. But the letter that they sent to the Gentile Christians to summarise the conclusions they came to leave many of us a bit confused. One potential requirement, circumcision, is rejected out of hand. And in its place, four restrictions are laid down in response. Don't eat food sacrifice idols, don't eat blood, don't eat the meat of strangled animals, and don't be involved in sexual immorality. Now, in 2023 Wollongong, it sounds like a strange list of prohibitions, with a very strong hint of legalistic rule-keeping being needed for our salvation. But if we actually understand the societies that the Gentiles who were going to receive these letters were living in, these restrictions were a clear way of insisting 
that we cannot be saved by keeping rules, by doing rituals. And yet, when we are saved by grace, it must change how we live. And so the either or of God's doing or ours is exposed as far too simplistic. Entry to God's family is a free gift, which then always leads on to a necessary human response. I think that chapter 16 is a demonstration of this, showing that in practice sometimes it's a a little bit more complicated than it sounds. In verses 1 to 5 of chapter 16, Paul returns to Lystra, the town where on the first missionary journey he had almost died for telling people about Jesus. Now, a young Christian named Timothy, who probably was converted through Paul's preaching, lived there and he's recommended to join the team that's now going out, out, taking the message about Jesus to places even further afield. And Paul circumcised him, verse 3, because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Hang on, that can't be right. At first sight, this could very easily be taken as a contradiction of the very outcome of chapter 15, that as a child of a Jewish mother and a Gentile father, Timothy was being unfairly obliged to undergo an unnecessary religious ritual. But there's no question here about whether Timothy has been saved or not. At issue is not his salvation, but the strategy that Paul and the team followed, that is, speaking to the Jews first, and only when the majority of Jews reject Jesus as the Messiah, then taking the message to Gentiles. Which means that Timothy gets circumcised not to be saved, but so that he's got a better chance of convincing Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who saves. Now, most people here, perhaps especially if you're male, would agree that that is quite some sacrifice, just to potentially increase your chances of getting an audience with a limited number of people who usually in the end get up up and refuse Jesus. But the outcome is considered by the author Luke as worthwhile. Have a look at verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and grew daily in numbers. Now, the next little section from verses 6 to 10 gives us an insight into how Paul and the team decide where to go. If you have a look up on the map, which should come up on the screen now, they start off in Lystra in the middle, which is Timothy's hometown. They travel through Phrygia and then up into Galatia, So the little purple line actually doesn't tell you exactly where they go. So the things you learn on the internet are not always true. Look at the text. Um, They're prevented by the Holy Spirit from going into Asia. And so instead, they try to go up into Bithynia, but they're stopped by the Spirit of Jesus. So they come back down, they skirt around Mysia and end up in Troas on the coast. From there they could have potentially gone in lots of different directions, headed inland, back into Asia, down to the south, or they could have jumped on a boat and gone a number of different directions. But Paul is given a vision by God that the whole team concludes means that they should cross the sea to Macedonia, right up the top, uh, what we call Greece. Now, again, we can see a mixture of both human activity 
and God at work. God doesn't give them step-by-step instructions. He expects Paul and the team to think and to plan and to respond to situations that they find themselves in. And yet at times, God does make clear what they are to do or, or even steps in to ensure that there is only one direction they can go at times. How the news about Jesus first gets to Europe is not simply a matter of miracles and neon signs in the sky like God leading the Israelites out of Egypt with a pillar of cloud and of fire. But neither is it independent human pragmatism or decision-making, wholly independent of God's direction. Now, in practice, there's a synergism. God does his part and his people are expected to do their part. And this same pattern is repeated again in verses 11 to 15. The team land at the port of Neapolis and head straight up to Philippi, the leading city of that area. As a Roman city, without a synagogue, this indicates that there were very few Jews living there. Sorry, Timothy. Yet Paul and the team head out to the river on the Sabbath because they know that's where Jews would go to pray on that day. They sat down and and talked with a group of women they met there, including a businesswoman named Lydia. She was already a worshipper of God, verse 14 says, which is a term used to describe those who practice parts of the Jewish religion, but they hadn't gone the whole way and actually converted and become a Jew. And have a look at what happens to Lydia. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. See, Paul explained what Jesus, who Jesus was and what Jesus had done, and God acted in Lydia's heart, enabling her to respond to the message. It's not God's work or ours, it's both end. And immediately, having received salvation, she offers the use of her home. Don't think two little, two little units in the city. It was probably a very big place as a, as a wealthy woman. Um, And she offers that as the base for Paul and the team. She trusts in Jesus to be saved. And when she's been saved, her gratitude is immediately expressed in this generous act. And all of this goes on to set us up for the passage that was read earlier. On yet another occasion, as Paul and the team were heading out to the place of prayer, they met a, a girl or a lady who could predict the future through a spirit that was in her. She was a slave, making big money for her owners through this gift. And surprisingly, the spirit makes a true claim. Verse 17, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now for the spirit world to be backing up Paul and Silas, you might think, would have been taken as a very positive thing. How's that for a bit of free advertising? But her shouting goes on and on and on for days. Finally, Paul has had enough and he commands the spirit to leave the girl. She's been freed, which leads immediately to Paul and Silas's capture. The girl's owners, who clearly care only for themselves, are outraged that their investment is now worthless. And so they take Paul and Silas to the marketplace, not to buy them lunch, 
But in those days, that was where the magistrates hung out and they could organise a spontaneous local court. Paul and Silas are accused of advocating customs that are unlawful for Romans. But it's telling that so long as the teaching about Jesus had continued to make the slave owner's investment famous, they'd been quite happy to allow this supposedly anti-Roman teaching to spread for days after days after days. Only when the bottom line is compromised do their strict morals kick in and the crowd also join in the attack. Convinced by the crowd rather than any evidence, the magistrates order Paul and Silas to be beaten, thrown in prison and carefully guarded. Undaunted by such injustice, Paul and Silas see their imprisonment not as a bad thing, but as another opportunity to tell even more people about Jesus. Their joy, regardless of their circumstances, is clearly compelling as they sing and pray at midnight. Their new audience of fellow inmates are not angry at them, they're listening intently. When a Violent earthquake shakes open every door and everyone's chains fall off. But rather than run, from, run for freedom, so convincing must Paul and Silas have been that everyone stays where they are. Now, I can't imagine, if you've heard me sing, uh, that my prayers or singing would ever convince anyone of their need for Jesus as saviour. But either Paul and Silas were wonderful singers or God performed more than one miracle that night. The freedom available in Jesus is considered far more valuable than merely being saved from jail. But this miracle isn't just for prisoners either. In a culture in which you could lose your life if you failed in fulfilling your duties, the jailer is just about to end his own life to try and make up for the shame of his failure. When Paul yells out, no one's gone anywhere, don't do it. Now, I don't know how Paul knew that it was going to happen. Obviously, it was the done thing because he couldn't have seen it. They bring flaming torches and are stunned that the criminals hadn't run away when presented with such an easy opportunity. The man that we assumed had all of the power in this story falls on his knees before his prisoners. Verse 30, he then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And in the middle of the night, Paul and Silas share the word of the Lord with him and his household, and they all believe. The jailer washes Paul and Silas's physical wounds, and Paul and Silas in turn wash the jailer and his household in baptism, symbolising the cleansing of he, his family, and probably his servants' spiritual wounds. Now, we might be thinking that everything has already turned out in a, in a perfect happy ending, but the story's not quite finished yet. Next morning, the magistrates have reconsidered their judgment and presumably realise that there was never any basis to the accusation. So they tell Paul and Silas, you guys can go free now. Sorry about that. But rather than just walk away quietly, they want the authorities to eat humble pie. Not only was their flogging and jailing unjustified, it was actually illegal in that the magistrates had abused Roman citizens. But this is not just about rubbing the authorities' noses in it. There is a purpose in their willingness, first of all, to suffer and only now point out the fact that they are Roman citizens. 
escorted from the jail-like dignitaries, a public declaration is being made. There is no need to make a choice between being a Roman or being a Christian. In fact, to be a Christian made Paul and Silas better Romans. The chapter finishes with the team taking the opportunity to encourage the baby church at Philippi, and then they head on their way. It's an extraordinary account, mixing the miraculous and the ordinary, the human and the divine. Paul and the team follow their usual, very human strategy of going where interested people were most likely to be found. They explain to the people there who Jesus is and what he had done. They try their best to persuade people. Less expected, but still just as human, they choose to remain in jail when they could have very easily interpreted the earthquake as a sign from God to get out of there. They are clearly not puppets. They're actively making real decisions. And yet while they are making decisions, God needed to give Paul the power to cast out the spirit. God sent the earthquake. God used explanation, songs and praying to change the hearts of Lydia and then criminals, the jailer, his family and probably servants. Historically, there's been a, a fierce debate about whether God decides who is saved or whether we decide for ourselves. But Acts 16 makes clear that it's not an issue of one or the other. Both are involved. So what does this all mean for us? Well, firstly, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus as your saviour, then today is a very good day to do that. Talk to him if you're already ready and you've just been waiting. Or talk to one of the pastors or the person you came with about how you can go about that. Perhaps you're not still convinced. It's possible from this passage that, that God will do something spectacular to convince you. But it's even more likely that he just wants you to talk it through with someone who, who will listen to you and point you in the direction of his answers to your hesitations or doubts. There are great books. There's some of them up on the screen that you can read, including free Bibles that are out in the foyer that you can take. There's podcasts that you can listen to, movies you can watch. But if you read, listen or watch, can I encourage you to beware as you do that? As Aussies, I think that many of us are more like the Romans in this chapter than we would like to admit. So long as God doesn't impact on our financial bottom line or suggest that there are things that I must avoid or I must do, then we can get along just fine. It's when God insists that we are not God, that we get our backs up and we'll use whatever means are convenient to just get rid of him, to push him away. I think that part of the warning of this passage is not to play that game. God is not a desperate social media influencer wanting you desperately to become one of his followers. He's not interested in you doing religious rituals somehow in his honour. He wants to rescue you, to bring you into his family. He wants to fill you with the same joy that could make prisoners sing and their jailer's life transformed. Being a Christian is not the burden of repetitious religious rituals, but neither is it having a genie in your pocket to give you all you want. God is your maker and he wants to be your saviour. What do you need to do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. 
Now, some will reject the suggestion that they even need to be saved. Others will think that grace sounds too good to be true. But this passage insists that the salvation that comes by believing in Jesus gives a joy that imprisonment cannot smother, is a freedom better than getting out of jail, and gives hope even when suicide seems like the only option. If you haven't been saved by Jesus, then what are you waiting for? Now, for many here, the moment you first believed is already in the past. For some of us, a long distance in the past. You all have already had your heart opened, chosen to trust in Jesus, different perspectives on the same thing. We need to be asking ourselves, is my trust in him still being expressed in actions? When Lydia had her heart opened, it overflowed in a response of generosity. When the jailer believed it, it led him to wash Paul and Silas's wounds and gave them a meal. Is that the kind of response that your joy is still regularly producing in you? Or has your joy become jaded? Does the grace of God still make your heart sing regardless of your circumstances? Or has it all become a bit of a chore? This passage is a reminder to all of us just how extraordinary it is that God should choose us and send Jesus to die in our place. He has done everything necessary for us to join his family. If that's no longer leading to acts of gratitude, then maybe you need to spend some more time reflecting on his grace. Ask to meet with a trusted friend to talk through why it's become like this. How did you get there? Spend some time praying, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what has gone wrong. Again, it's not either God or your friend. Both God and we can work together in this. Every single day we are confronted with choices. Coffee or tea? Chicken or the fish? Yes or no? But Acts chapter 16 tells us not to ask if salvation is God's work or ours. Rather, we should accept the free gift offered to us in Jesus and then respond with gratitude that overflows, showing that we truly understand the priceless gift that we have been given. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, again, we thank you for the book of Acts and these accounts of things that took place not just a long time ago, but as a lesson to show us how we should understand how life works. We thank you that you are the gracious God who provided for us everything that we could possibly need in order to be saved. All we need to do is trust in the Lord Jesus and we will be saved. That's your promise to each one who is here tonight. Lord, if there are some that are still holding out that, are, that are, have been putting this off for whatever reason, I pray that you'd be at work in their hearts now, enabling them to realise that now's the time. Lord, if there's people that are still wondering and, and confused and, and wanting more evidence, I pray that they would take a Bible, that they would read some of these books or listen to a podcast, watch a movie that will help them to actually wrestle with the issues to see that you are exactly who you say you are. And for the many of us, who've been trusting in you for a short time or long, I pray that we would have the grace to reflect on our lives, to examine them carefully and see if that grace is leading to a generous response. And Lord, if it's not, help us to 
make time to have that conversation with a friend, to, to take that time out with you, uh, to reflect and ask, how have we got into this slump? And instead, may we again be absolutely blown away by your amazing grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.